From the beautiful city of Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. Hey, hey, welcome to Film Forward, everybody, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. A few years ago, I happened upon an amazing triple feature at the New Beverly Cinema, three films directed by Cat Shea that were Poison Ivy, Streets, and Strip to Kill, and I was not prepared for how explosive this triple bill would be. The empathy that Cat creates with her characters, her expert use of tension and sensuality, and just like the masterful work she's able to accomplish on a shoestring budget all just blew me away. And since then, she's gone on to direct several more films, including the new Netflix film Rescued by Ruby. She's also a seasoned and accomplished acting coach. But today, she's joining us here on Film Forward, and we're so blessed to have her. Kat Shea, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Nicholas. I really appreciate it. Before we get into your new film, Rescued by Ruby, I wanted to talk about your journey through this industry because your journey's very excited, it's very storied, and it's been kind of all over the place. You get your start as an actor, correct? Well, I was writing. Okay. I was writing at the time with Andy Rubin. I was auditioning and, you know, exploring everything and acting, writing. I wasn't really thinking about directing at that point, though. Yeah. And then your directing career, you got started with Roger Corman, who's a, you know, the legendary independent pop cinema producer. How did you get into the Corman wheelhouse, which is like a, a tight circle, but how, how did you start working with him? And Interestingly enough, I got in through acting, which rarely happens. I auditioned for a lead role in one of Roger's, you know, uh, sword and sandal epics. Right. And, and I was the second choice, actually for the role, but the first choice got a pilot and she had to go off and do the pilot. So I got the part. And at the time, I guess I I was just used to working with actors and, you know, writing. And there was a little bit of difficulty with one of the stars, the main star of the movie. And I guess the director, what I heard later was really appreciated help I gave to sort of ameliorate the situation. And that got back to Roger. And so I had a good reputation as an actor on set and actually helping production. So when I got back, Roger asked me to do another part, sort of the female relief in this all-guy action movie And again, I worked with the director and I shot a little bit of second unit and just, I was always on the other side of the camera as well, you know, sort of where I was interested in being. Where did that interest spark? Was it something that you always wanted to work in film or, or behind the camera from a young age, or was that interest uh, spark? When I was 12, I was writing plays and casting them with neighborhood kids and putting them on in my backyard and charging the parents exorbitant rates to come and see their kids perform. 
So, <laughs> you know, I mean, I found out I could make money and be an archer at the same time. So <laughs> it started very young. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I wasn't shooting things back then, but, you know, it seemed like that would be the logical next step. And then with that next step, you know, you had Strip to Kill was... What you made with Roger Corman, which you directed, was that a pitch that you took to him or was that kind of like in the Corman, you know, bank that they gave to you? No, 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 not at all. It was a pitch that I brought to Roger. And, you know, at that time now, you know, the whole stripper milieu is very well known. But at that time, you'd never seen a stripper you know, actually performing anything like that in a movie, you know, the pole dancing and all that. Nobody knew about it. Right. The artistry. Yeah. The artistry of it. The only reason I knew about it was I lost a bet with Andy. Uh, He told me that muscles were poisonous at certain times of year. I never heard of that. I thought he was just in my leg and <laughs> I lost the bet and his big punishment to me was that I had to go to a strip club because he considered me really straight laced <laughs> and that would be hor- I, that would just be terrible to make me do that so uh you know I lost the bet I had to do it I was pacing back and forth in front of the body shop on Sunset Boulevard and he's <laughs> saying to me okay you don't have to do it forget it you know I release you. And I went, no, I'm going to do it. And, you know, I walked in and I was immediately carded. And they thought I was like 17 or something. And and then they asked me if I was an off-duty stripper and was I there to apply for a job. And it was like, oh my God, this is really crazy. And, but I took a seat right in the front and it actually kind of blew me away because you know, who knew that there were these artists really using this stage to kind of get their creativity out. And it was very surprising to me because I expected just, you know, a bunch of guys throwing dollar bills to get the best look they could and that sort of thing. And I saw these women come out one after another, really presenting a show. And I I was just blown away. One of them had puppets. Her name is Lucia. And she she had these puppets and she would talk to the puppets and the puppet would rip her clothes off. (laughs) It was really, it was really fun. And it was really amazing. And there was another one that was a pole dancer and she was doing these moves on the pole with her arms and the arm strength to be able to do that and hold these really elegant poses. And then she would look at the audience like it was just amazing what she did with her eyes. And I just thought, this is something people don't know about. And especially this pool thing. I'd never seen that before. When I talked to people about it, they didn't know anything about it. Nobody's seen anything like that. So I, <laughs> I sort of, uh, you know, accidentally on purpose ran into Roger Corman. I, his office is on San Vicente Boulevard in Brentwood. Mm-hmm. And he has a big picture window. And you could see the back of him at his desk through this picture window. And I thought, I know he goes to lunch because I've done these movies there. And I, I knew enough that he goes to lunch every day at 1230. 
So I sat in my car. I watched him get up from his desk at 1230. I ran around the block. I accidentally ran into him and said, <laughs> oh, my God, Roger, you remember me? Cat, I was in you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I remember you. I said, I have got a pitch for you. You're not going to believe it involves strippers. They're unbelievable. I told him what the poster would look like, that it would be this woman flying around the pole, very scantily clad. And he was just, he was pretty mesmerized by it. He said, okay, come in Monday morning and pitch me the story. So I did. And he was very on the fence about it. It took me a year to convince him to do the movie because he didn't, wow. you, know, you know, the story that, and I, I don't think we need to do a spoiler alert, but okay, here's a spoiler alert. The movie's like 35 years old, but anyway, <laughs> a man has to pull off, you know, looking like a woman and as a stripper. And this was before the crying game. So it wasn't, something that had been seen before either, you know? Right. So Roger didn't believe that we could pull that off. And it took me an entire year to convince him that we could. I sent him pictures of guys, very scantily clad, pulling it off, looking as like a woman. And then I was actually in the movie Psycho 3. And my makeup artist was Mike Westmore who did all the prosthetic stuff for Raging Bull. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so he wrote a letter to Roger that he would do the prosthetic breasts at cost. And he said that he absolutely knew it would work. So that was a huge thing. When Roger got that letter from Mike Westmore, who'd won an Academy Award Mm -hmm. for Raging Bull and who had agreed because he was my friend now to do this work at cost that is speaking Roger's language. Right. right. Okay. We could pull it off and we could do it on the cheap. All right. We're good. Right. right. I mean, that was one of the main things that really helped get the movie made, but it was so difficult. I mean, at one point I brought in a female impersonator from the nightclub La Caja Fall mm-hmm. um, on La Cienega. And uh, I don't think it's there anymore. It's been long gone. But he came in and he was describing exactly what he does with his package when he's in a G string. <laughs> and oh my God, Roger turned purple. I mean, he was just, you know, he's very refined, very classy guy, unlike what people have in their minds. But he was, he was just, he was flabbergasted by what he was hearing. And he said, just get out of my office. You can do it. I just get out of my office. Right. Uh, that's kind of the story. He later called me and said, no, I changed my mind. You can't do it. But I just wouldn't take no for an answer at that point. I said, no, you said we could do it. We're doing it. We're doing it, Roger. So <laughs> then we turned in the script. He gave it to MGM, who paid him $3 million for the video rights based on the script. And we were more than a go. Our budget was upped. You know, we got name actors for it and all that kind of great and stuff. Yeah, the, the rest was history. Yeah. And it's a great film. It holds up. And years later, you went on to make Poison Ivy, which has become somewhat of a cult classic. Yeah. When you were making Poison Ivy, did you have any sense that this film would have the legs that it's had for, for nearly 30 years? Because that was another film that you wrote as well, correct? Right. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, I was always so passionate about whatever 
movie I was making that I expected them all to be, you know, right. Classics. <laughs> Which is kind of funny, you know, when you think about it. But yeah, I mean, I was just so passionate. I absolutely expected them to to have very long lives. And when we were emailing, setting this up, we talked briefly about Streets, which I think is just like such an underrated gem of a film. I've tried to find it like streaming or or mm-hmm. like on a on a Blu-ray some places. I, I was just so lucky that I got to see that print at the New Beverly. And what an incredible film that was. And Christina Applegate's performance is like unlike anything you'd ever seen her do before. She's she's tremendous yeah. in it. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. I, I don't know why that film got lost, but uh it's almost like it was uh suppressed. I don't understand why. I don't know what happened. I just don't know. Faden Papa Michael did some extraordinary work in it. And also Janusz Kaminski, who shot a great deal of the film as well, because we had two units going at the same time. We were supposed to shoot that movie in 15 days. And you, you know, you saw how it looked and what it was like. And shooting something like that in 15 days is really impossible unless you really prepare. And Roger happened to be out of town and in Europe. And so I was kind of had free reign and I was shooting two units at the same time. Amazing. <laughs> one with Aiden Papa Michael and one with Janusz Kaminski. Amazing. You don't get any better than that. You know what I no, mean? No, no. And then Christina was, I mean, she was phenomenal. She was just amazing. And, and David Mendenhall was lovely in it. So it was pretty cool. Hard work, man. We just worked night and day. We never slept. You know, I, well, slept, yeah. I, I slept at the lumber yard <laughs> at Roger's lumber yard that he called a studio. <laughs> you know, I'm sleeping yeah. on the couch. Making a movie in 15 days, which I've done, is no joke. It's an endurance test and a test of the test of the will, test of the heart, test of the body. It's, a, it's just yeah. it's a it's a test of it all. Yeah, it did play, though, at uh, twice at MoMA. Uh, at two retrospectives at MoMA in New York City and also at the British Film Institute in London. So it was recognized, but also lost. Yeah, I think for those who have seen it, I think they they love it. And for those who haven't seen it, seek it out. We'll try and find it. I'll try and see if I can contact Cinephile, friends over at Cinephile Video, see if they've see if they've got a copy that we can we can send a link to for you guys to rent the old fashioned way. Yeah. And and Andy Rubin and I wrote it together. And uh, he was a fabulous writer. Your filmography has kind of a large gap from 2001 to, to 2019 before you came back to make the Nancy Drew film. Was there a reason for the long break? Were you doing a career shift or was it just the throes of Hollywood not giving you your due? Well, you know, I mean, it was just so hard, honestly. As a female director, it was just nearly impossible to break through on the studio level. I mean, I guess I could have kept making really super low budget movies through that time, but it is so difficult. It's so hard on you to do Mm -hmm. that. I didn't want to go backwards, you know, and opportunities for, uh, honestly, for female directors were so scarce. It just, it it was unbelievable. I mean, and at one point my agent told me, because I said, well, why do these things keep falling through? You know, 
everybody says they want to work with me and all this stuff. And that's so positive. And, and then I don't direct anything, you know, I didn't direct anything for six years after poison Ivy. Right. You know, I had to go back to Roger Corman actually after poison Ivy, after poison Ivy was this huge hit. Everybody in Hollywood knew my name. I could call up anybody and say, this is Kat Shea and get through. I mean, which is incredible. Yeah. And then I had to go back and do a 15 day shoot for Roger. And so, you know, I mean, it was like, I finally just went, you know what? There's no place for me in this business. They're not going to let me in. So six years later, Jeff Kleeman called me, who was then the vice president at United Artists. And Lindsay Duran was president. And they said they had a movie that they were going to pull the plug on to shelf if I didn't take over the directing. And that was called The Rage Carry 2. And so I did, but it was really scary because it was like, oh my God, these people, this director, I really respect the director. First of all, he's wonderful. They've been shooting for two weeks. The actors are all cast. They... Mm -hmm. They're loyal to their director. How is this possibly going to work? But I thought, is it worse to just have everybody, you know, go home, have the plug pulled and everybody goes home? And I thought, no, you know, that's probably much, much worse. So I'm going to go do it. And that was incredible. You know, I mean, it had a much longer schedule than I was used to. So Two weeks actually got thrown away and I stayed on schedule and reshot. But I worked with Don Morgan, who is just a master cinematographer and so much fun. It was so easy to inspire him. You know, I would come up with a really crazy idea and he would be just like, oh my God, that's fantastic. So, you know, I've worked with cinematographers who have just been so wonderful because, you know, like I come up with some really crazy stuff sometimes and I'm, you know, I'm like so hesitant to tell them like some crazy idea. I've got where to put the camera and how it's going to look. And they've always been so wonderful. Like Wally Fister was so wonderful. You know, I would come up with, you go, you always say this is some crazy idea and it's probably horrible. He goes, and then it's some magnificent thing. So I kind of would go, okay, well, maybe this is still a good way to approach it <laughs> since uh, it seems to be working for me. Just <laughs> a terrible idea. Uh, uh, what do you think? And they, and they all seem to really go for it and really love it. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, Carrie too, that was rough. It's hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to come in. I've come into features that were in process, you know, as an AD or like uh, to help production get back on track or something. Coming in as a director mid project, I can't imagine <sighs> how, how difficult it must be because there's, you know, there's a, a rhythm, a flow already. And whether it's good or bad, there's like coming in as the, as the new person, you got to work your way in and you're running the show also. So it's, it's tough. No, it's difficult and it's scary, but also the whole idea of doing a sequel to Carrie. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. You know, look, first of all, I'm going to get crucified for doing this. So, (laughs) uh, you know, that, that's kind of like without saying that's going to happen. 
So, you know, at that point I go, well, you know, I haven't worked in six years because my agent says, uh, you know, male actors don't want to be directed by women. And I thought, well, you know, what have I got to lose? Right. (laughs) So, and now look what's happened with it. It's really crazy. You know, the fact that it is appreciated now 30 years later and it's like it was released yesterday. I get yeah. fan letters about it now. I get yeah. asked from the screenings and, you know. It's got this new life. Because a lot of your films have, have found kind of new life. It was ahead of its time. Thank yeah. you, Jeff. Jeff Kleeman is amazing, by the way. What an amazing executive to have. He, oh my God, he's the, he's the best. Looking at your filmography, you're very versatile as a filmmaker. You've done slasher, you've done horror, you've done drama, and now you're doing family films. The common denominators, I think, are kind of like your your underdog characters. But I guess my question is, how do you prepare for different genres? Because you, you jump from genre to genre so seamlessly. And do you have a favorite genre? Is there one that you kind of consider your home? Well, now I do, you know, I mean, you change through the years and I think I was much more into the dark stuff, you know, when I was younger, um, Mm -hmm. that was just so intriguing to me. And, you know, like, like Andy would say, or like the strippers called me, they used to call me the college girl. (laughs) Oh, is the college girl in the audience tonight? Cause I was, you know, I was looking to cast real strippers. And so I think, you know, because I did have sort of a sheltered Catholic upbringing and everything, I was very intrigued by the dark side, you know, the horror side. And the see, the thing about horror is it gives you free reign artistically, you know, as far as camera angles go and, and telling the story in a visual way, you just have so much latitude. You just have so much freedom uh, you know, where to put the camera, how to shoot stuff. It's very exciting yeah. artistically. And that's where I was at at that time. And now I really, really like doing family movies and I want to continue doing family movies, first of all, because the whole family can watch them and, right. you know, learn something or feel good or, you know, talk about it or get joy from it, that is really, really satisfying. I'm so grateful that I have been able to do a couple of really straight off family films. So, uh, you know, with Nancy Drew and the Hidden Staircase with Sophia Lillis, and then, you know, Rescued by Ruby with Grant Gustin and Bear. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a joyful thing, you know? It's a whole different energy. I would not want to be in the editing room every day working on something dark. I think right now, at this point in time, the world needs some relief and some joy. Yeah. Reading the newspapers a harsh enough for a dark reality as it is. So Ruby and Bear are a welcome reprise from the harsh realities of the world. Yes, absolutely. I'm so happy I got to do that. Absolutely. And we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about your new film, Rescued by Ruby. So stick with us, everybody. More with Kat Shea on Film Forward. 
we'd like to take a minute to talk about LADFF sponsor E-Minutes. E-Minutes is a corporate entertainment law firm that handles the corporate minutes for more than 38,000 entities involved in the entertainment industry. Like last year, they're sponsoring an award with the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival called the Emerging Filmmaker Award. You can learn more about our partnership with E-Minutes Arts and their mission to amplify the voices of underrepresented storytellers at eminutes.com forward slash arts. That's eminutes.com forward slash arts. Hello, I'm Sonia, and this is my Movie Minute. Today, I want to spend a minute appreciating the master filmmaker and seemingly awesome dude, Jim Jarmusch. Or as Nick likes to call him, Jim Jarmusch. He doesn't have a new movie out right now, but I'm sure he has something cooking. His last feature was the kooky zombie flick, The Dead Don't Die, with title song by my favorite, Sturgill Simpson. The film that made me want to devote this brief moment to Jim was watching Mystery Train the other day. To use another Nickism, it blew my hair back. What a great movie. Like so many of my favorite movies, it tells a few intertwined stories. All three stories in Mystery Train take place in a single night in Memphis, centering around each character staying the night at the Divey Arcade Hotel, with rooms that each feature a painting of Elvis. If you haven't seen it, see it. And if you have seen it, see it again. One of my favorite things about Jim's films is his incredible casting almost always ensemble, usually including one of his regulars like Tilda Swinton, Roberto Benigni, or Chloe Sevigny, and always including musicians like Tom Waits, Joe Strummer, John Laurie, Iggy Pop, RZA, Jizza, The White Stripes, the list goes on. It feels like a big weird family, and the pleasure these people find in being together making art can be felt coming off the screen. The Criterion Channel has a great collection of Jarmusch films to set you on the path of becoming his biggest fan if you aren't already. If you don't know where to start, I suggest Mystery Train or Broken Flowers, which isn't on Criterion right now, but should be easy to find. It stars Bill Murray. That was my minute. Thanks for listening. Oh boy, you know, (laughs) I try to avoid thinking about a legacy somehow. It seems too daunting. I really don't know how to answer that, except my snarky answer would be to Like, at my funeral, I think they should play um, the Sid Vicious version of My Way. And uh, that's sort of what my answer is. All right. Welcome back to Film Forward, everybody. We are here with director Kat Shea. I've been fanboying out on Kat's amazing career. But now we're going to talk about her new film, the very heartwarming Rescued by Ruby Kat, for those who don't know about it, tell the audience a little bit about this film, Rescued by Ruby. Okay. Ruby is a dog. She's been at an animal shelter. She was adopted five times and returned. And on the day that she is scheduled to be euthanized, she is adopted by Dan O'Neill. And it's the story of how Ruby becomes a search and rescue dog. I don't want to give anything away, but yeah, yeah no, that, <laughs> that's story. Honestly, it's a love story between Dan O'Neill and Ruby. <laughs> totally. The story is so incredible. And also it being based off a true story is like, makes it even that much more incredible. 
What was your first reaction when you read this script? Uh, you know, I just wanted to do it. I mean, it's a very rare thing to read a script and just go, oh my gosh, I want to do this. You know, I mean, that just doesn't happen very often. And I just feel so, so honored to have been able to be the one who brought it to the screen. Looking at your career, I would say you're kind of like a good luck charm for talent. There's lots of stars have had tremendous careers after getting the cachet touch, let's say. And I think we have another candidate here with Bear, the dog who plays <laughs> Ruby in the film. Talk to us about working with Bear and the trainers. Oh, well, Bear is amazing. You know, I mean, he had never done anything before. And wow. he was actually a shelter dog who was scheduled to be put down. When one of our trainers, her name is Sarah, and she lives in the in a very similar neighborhood. I live in out in the country, and a lot of the dog trainers live in the country, kind of close to me. But anyway, Sarah had located him at a Texas shelter, and she brought him to Acton, California. And one of my very dear friends, her name is Tiffany Wall. When I got this script, and it was before I'd even been hired as a director, I snuck it to her. And I said, well, the producers want to use two white German shepherds and paint them to look like, you know, this border collie Australian shepherd. And I said, I'm really wary about that. I'm freaking out about it, actually, because I don't even have the job yet. And already I don't want them to do that. Yeah. So I wanted to get Tiffany on board even before I was, because I wanted her take on it. And she said, she told me right off, she said, I can find this dog for you. And I said, it's got to be a shelter dog. I go, how can we have, you know, some purebred German Shepherd playing the shelter dog? It just doesn't make sense to me. Okay. It, it, she's got to be a mutt. That's the whole point. You know, right. it's not like the point of the movie was she didn't fit in, you know? with all of these purebred, incredible German Shepherds and uh, Malamois. So I just went, you know, this doesn't compute for me at all. What do you think? And thank God she was totally supportive. And she said, absolutely, you got to get a shelter dog. We will find you one. So, <laughs> but, you know, it's really hard when you, you really want to do this directing job and the first thing you have to say to the producer is, no, I don't want to do it like that. <laughs> so that was really some careful tap dancing right there. <laughs> but thank God it happened and we have Bear. So Tiffany located Bear and he's like 10 miles away from my house. Wow. So they did hire me. And at that point... When my contract was being negotiated, I said, I have the trainers and I have the dog. And it was kind of like, what? Wait, we already have all that. And I said, I've really got something good here, though. Uh, it's a shelter dog. And this dog was scheduled to be put down just like Ruby. And he's amazing. So all that worked out. And I'm so happy it did. That's such a beautiful story. I mean, like Ruby's story is beautiful for the reasons that that you said. And then it just makes so much sense, like you said, that 
the actor playing Ruby would be a sheltered dog also, because, you know, as silly as it sounds like the dog's got to feel right. And Bear feels so right, you know, in this first act of the film when she's such a rambunctious little, uh, little, little character. What a beautiful, beautiful way to, to make it. I didn't see, you know, the way um, Karen Jensen is the writer on it and the way Karen wrote about Ruby was that she stood out from the other dogs as being completely different, you know? And I love that. Of course, I love that. You know, that's kind of my signature is Mm -hmm. the ones who are different, you know? Casting white German shepherds to play the role, she wasn't going to look different, you know? Yeah. It was really important to me that she did. And talk to us a little bit about the production. Did you guys film this in Providence, Rhode Island, or did you guys film it somewhere somewhere locally? No, we actually shot in Victoria, on Victoria oh. Island, which is such a good match for Rhode Island. I wish that we could have shot it in Rhode Island. I always want to shoot in the real place. That's kind of my MO as well, but you know, that's a very rare occurrence. Right, so. yeah. That must have been nice too. Just going on location anywhere is kind of nice. And then especially someplace that's not LA or isn't a normal film hub, you get a little bit more advantage of like, people are just happy that you're filming there as opposed to LA where everybody is upset that you're filming on their block, you know? Yes. They're not jaded about it at all. They're so excited. And that is a huge plus. And Victoria Island is so beautiful. Right. That was a lovely experience. That was my best, honestly, my best location experience ever was Victoria Island. Wow, that's amazing. It was so great to see Scott Wolf in the film. I know he's been working. I don't watch a lot of TV. I know he's been like consistently doing television work, but it was great to see him in a film again. And he's still so great. Talk to us a little bit about working with Scott. Oh, that was so interesting to work with him because, you know, He was really in character as Matt Zarella. When I first started talking to Scott, he's just this great, you know, very low-key, happy, laughing, kind of jokey guy. And then when he came to set, he was totally in character as, you know, Matt's a pretty, he is also funny, but he's very, he's strict, you know, he's pretty strict about what he does. And Scott came on like that. And he kind of blew our minds a little bit. We weren't expecting that, you know? That's funny. He's, he, he went for it just to let everybody know. That's great. Matt is intimidating. And that's what it is. Matt right. is the people under him are a little bit scared of him. They're scared of him. And Scott came on set like that. A little scary. Did you talk to him about that after, like once you guys wrapped and he was able to uh, to relax again? Did you talk to him about? Yeah. Oh yeah, I was like, you really surprised me. <laughs> that was pretty crazy, but not bad. Great. Yeah, he's really cool. He's really cool. I talked to him a number of times when we were in post doing editing because I needed little ADR lines here and there, you know, replacement lines, like if, if something was muffled. I would ask him to just record it on his iPhone and send it to me. He was always so cooperative and uh, really cool. Awesome. Awesome to hear. With every film you kind of like, there's something new you learn. You're changed in some way with each movie you make, just because, as you said, it just it takes a lot to make a movie. What do you think your biggest 
takeaway from Rescued by Ruby is? What's your walk away now that the film's done? It's been well-received. Well, I would have to say it's how happy the film makes people and how much of a response that I've gotten. Just incredibly positive and thanking me for making such a positive film and people telling me that this is what they needed to see and people from all walks of life saying that people coming from very dark places saying that saying, Oh my gosh, this, this helped me. It really, it was so good to see, you know, the underdog, it's an underdog story that you can succeed. Even if you've been at the bottom and man, Ruby was at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And such a tremendous, heartwarming film. It's available right now, everybody. Go check it out. Rescued by Ruby. It's on Netflix. It's a great watch with the kids. It's a great watch by yourself. Watch it with your rescue dog like I did. You know, my rescue dog and I had a good cry together watching it. Yes, it's not sad. There were tears of joy. Tears of joy. Absolutely. Tears of joy. Tears of love. I hugged my dog after watching it. It's uh, a beautiful film. So Kat, thanks so much for making it. And thank you so much for being here with us today, chatting about the film, chatting about your career. This was a real treat. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much, Nicholas. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you all for listening to Film Forward. We'll catch you next time. Our recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru, and yours truly. Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, and you'll hear us next time.